If you're questioning your decisions this morning, uh, then know that you chose correctly coming to the 1030 service because I went long in the nine o'clock service. And so you're already winning today unless you were in the nursery during the nine o'clock service. And then I'm very, very sorry. And I owe you lunch or something. Uh, But I'm glad that you're here. So this past year, my wife and I really got into the show American Idol. And I say that with a little bit of embarrassment, but uh, if you're judging me for that, then James has something for you today. So you just wait and you'll get yours. Uh, But if if, if you haven't seen American Idol, you're, you're really probably lying, but if you don't know what the show's about, it's built on this premise that people believe they have talent of value and they come before judges and before America or whoever watches it to see if their idea of their own talent is in line with reality, right? So they think that they can sing, they come on the show, and they find out. And, and some of them go through this journey of self-exploration where they're far more talented than what they thought, and others are far less talented than what they thought, and they immediately get cut, right? But this premise of you think you can sing, come on the show, and let's see what you've got. You think you have something of value, come on the show and let's see, is really threaded throughout a lot of the game type shows that we watch, right? So you think you can dance, come on the show and let's see if you can actually dance. You think that you have a product of value, come on to Shark Tank and let's see if you actually do have a product of value, right? You think you have knowledge, come on to Jeopardy and let's see what you really know, And that's this premise that goes throughout all of these shows. And it's that exact premise that James opens up our passage with today. He says, so you think you're religious. Let's find out. So today, one by one, you come up on the stage and we'll ask you questions about your life. And then we can decide if you're actually religious or not, right? But the passage is hard. It's just, to be honest, it's a hard passage. I've wrestled with it a lot uh, this week, and it's hard for a couple reasons. The first one is because James is famous for writing in a way that feels really disjointed. When you read the book of James, it feels like he's, he's throwing a lot at you, and it doesn't always feel like it even connects. However, I'm convinced that this passage has a lot more connective tissue than what it appears. And so we're gonna try and connect everything that he's saying in this passage. The second reason that it's hard is because if we're not careful, we read a passage like this and it can create in us a works-based salvation. If we're not cautious when we read these passages, what happens is you'll leave here feeling more of a heavy burden for doing better and being better rather than feeling a joyful embrace of gospel truth, which is the goal. I don't want you to leave here feeling weighed down. I don't want you to leave here feeling, I've got to be better, I've got to do better. And if we're not careful, this type of passage lends itself to those feelings. And so for these reasons, it's hard, but I feel confident that we can do it, uh, that the Holy Spirit will be gracious to us, I pray. And so we're going to just walk through this passage together. And in the passage, he begins, as I mentioned earlier, in verse 26 with this, if anyone thinks he is religious, you think your religion is there, let's see, 
And this word that James uses for religion here, it's an incredibly broad word. In fact, this word is only used a handful of times in all of the New Testament because it's really just not a helpful word. It's so broad that it's not helpful in any context. However, I think James did that on purpose. I think his point is that there is a broad idea of religion. And that's especially true in our culture, right? There are a lot of people who broadly claim, yeah, I'm religious. Yeah, I believe in God, even really within the Christian world. There are a lot of people who broadly say, I'm a Christian. And yet James's point here is not everyone that broadly says that has a religion, has a true relationship with Jesus. It reminds me of Matthew 7, 13 through 14, where Jesus says it this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. James is affirming the words of Jesus here saying there's a lot of people that say, yeah, I'm religious. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in God. And yet there are few that have found religion that's really valuable, that's really important, that's really authentic. And that's what James is getting to here. He's saying you think you're religious Let's find out what type of religion that is. Let's find out if it's worth something. And that's what he continues in verse 26. He says that if anyone thinks he is religious but doesn't brittle his tongue, his religion is worthless. And in verses 26 and 27, he gives us three criteria for worthless or for healthy religion, right? You can do it the negative way or the positive way. But before we get to those criteria, I want to pause here on this word, worthless. He says, if you don't brittle your tongue, your religion is worthless, vain, meaningless. And I want to sit with that word. What is your religion worth to you? What is a relationship with Jesus worth to you? Is it of something that is supremely valuable in your life? Or is it something that you would say, you know, if I was being honest, it's a little bit worthless. It's kind of on the back burner. It doesn't really have a whole lot of implication for my day to day. It's worthless. What does it mean to you? I would contrast this with the other ideas of scripture. In Matthew 13, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven this way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So contrast this idea of worthless religion with how Jesus describes it and says, it's so valuable that it's like if you found a treasure in a field, you would go and sell everything that you have in order to purchase that field and obtain that treasure. That's how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. Uh, Paul helpfully describes it in Philippians 3. He says, But whatever gain I had, I had counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
So there's this contrast, right? What James is drawing out and trying to help show us is that there is this type of religion that is really worthless. It's a broad claim. And yet what scripture is telling us is that true religion, a true understanding of the gospel means that it has great value in your life and it dictates your life in a way that brings you joy. See, the problem with meaningless and worthless religion is that it has no change at the core of your heart and your deepest cravings. There's no transformation in the foundation of your joy. It's not true religion. If your desire hasn't changed and what makes you joyful hasn't changed and your treasure hasn't changed, then know that that type of religion is not the type of saving faith we see in the Bible, but instead it is worthless. It's meaningless and it's empty. That's what James is drawing out for us here. He's warning us of that type of faith and he's gonna show us what it looks like with these three criteria, verses 26 and 27. He says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. So so if we were making a list of what is, to say it negatively, worthless religion, or what are some expressions in our lives of positive, worthwhile, authentic religion, the list would go like this. It would be control your tongue, visit orphans and widows, and remain unstained from the world. It's verses 26 and 27. Then he goes on in chapter 2, And he talks about this sin of partiality. Ryan, we read this together earlier, but just as a refresher in verse one of chapter two, he says, don't show partiality. If you do that, it is sinful, which he very clearly tells us in chapter two, verse nine. And then he goes on to show us what that looks like, right? He says, so for example, if a really wealthy, high status person comes into your community and you say, you come sit here in the good seat by me. And then a, a poor, low status individual comes in and you say, hey, you, you can go sit in the back. You can sit on the floor. You can sit by my feet. I'm not really too worried about you. Then that's partiality. And James is commanding us to avoid that. Okay, so what I want to do this morning together is I want to try and show you that the three expressions of religion that James gives us in verses 26 and 27, right? Control your tongue, give to the needy, become unstained from the world. I want to show you how those connect with chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I want to show you that there is a common principle that threads all of it together. All right, so this is what I meant when I said James often writes in a way that feels disjointed, but I think there's more connection there than we often see, is I want to try and show you how all of that comes together and how as that comes together, the DNA of the gospel takes root in our heart, and that's where these expressions come from that James is talking about. Okay, so, so what we are going to do, the roadmap for today is first, I want to give you one common principle that ties all of these things together. One common principle that ties all of these things together. Partiality, controlling the tongue, giving to the needy, remaining unstained from the world. Then what I want to do 
is I want to show you how that common principle is expressed in each of those. I want to, can I help you see it? And then we're going to go to three gospel principles, three ways that the gospel takes root in our heart so that these things overflow in our lives. So here's the common principle first. It's that meaningful religion outwardly expresses itself with a radically selfless and countercultural consideration and love of other people in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. This is not a new principle for you. Another way that we could say it more simply is that true believers and a true community of believers will love people really, really well. Again, this is not a new principle to you. You've seen this all throughout scripture, right? In fact, James 2, 8, at the end of the passage, he's quoting the Levitical law, then later Jesus, when he says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this common principle of loving people well that's connecting everything we see in James today. I wanna go through those things and show you how that principle is is connecting them. And we're just gonna touch on these briefly, okay? Uh, James is really giving us an outline and each of these things he comes back to later in scripture. So controlling the tongue, giving to those in need, being unstained from the world. We'll cover that later in James in more depth. So we're just gonna hit them quickly. The first one that we've mentioned, we love others well, by controlling our tongue. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his heart, his religion is worthless. And the Bible has a lot to say about the words that we use. Right? Ephesians 5 warns us of obscene, crude, and foolish type of speech. Proverbs 12 warns us that we should avoid being dishonest or deceitful with our speech. And those are great things that we need to adhere to and obey, but I don't think those are the things James is talking about. I think James is predominantly talking about our speech and the way that we speak about other people. The way we use our mouth to talk about others. I think that for two reasons. One, the context of this passage. Everything in this passage, as I'll show you, is about loving people well. And so the tongue in that context, I think is about loving people well. But it's also exactly where James goes in James chapter three. If you were to flip over one page, when he expounds on this idea, he says in James three, eight and nine, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Right? So he's pointing out the irony that we can worship God on Sunday, and then we can go to lunch and speak evil about somebody. The ironic contrast there, I think, is what James is pulling out in James 3. So when he says, control the tongue, it's predominantly about the way we talk to people. The second thing he mentions is that we love others well by providing for their needs. Religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Providing for those in need. 
The reason that I've broadened this from widows and orphans specifically to all of those in need is because there's some cultural nuance here. James was writing to a culture which predominantly meant widows and orphans were the ones in need because one, they didn't have good life insurance plans. And so when a husband died, they they didn't have money that went to the family. But two, there were very few working opportunities for females here. And so if a husband died and a mom was left with kids without good opportunities for work, they were very much in need. And so James is saying, take care of those people. And what he says to us today is that meaningful religion will love others well that are in need. How do we love others well that are in need? One thing that we need to be aware of here is that we typically read scripture through a very Western culture individualistic lens. So when we read this, my first thought is, how do I love others in need? Certainly you should as individuals. But James is writing to a community here. And so the bigger question is, how do we love those in need? How do I belong to a community that loves others that are in need. And I think it's far less overwhelming when you think of this command in the context of community, right? So when I read this, I go, what does this look like? How do I even spot people in need and find people in need? And and what does this mean for my life? And I just wanna give you a really practical way that you can obey this command immediately. You belong to a body of believers that do this. One way that you can do this is you tithe to Northway, right? As a church, we're committed to our budget helping those in need, locally and globally. We partner with state foster care and and we house that so that we can give people a place uh, to love on orphans that are in need. We we partner with ministries like Covenant, Covenant Care, right? Adoption agency. We partner with Caring Solutions, an unplanned pregnancy center. These are ways that we resource our community to help people in need, as well as a a variety of other local nonprofits that help people in need. When you give, you help that. A large portion of our budget goes to IMB, the International Mission Board that sends missionaries all around the globe to help provide for the physical, but more importantly, the spiritual needs of those who are in great need. And so you, you fulfill this command when you faithfully tithe that we as a community are committed to helping those in need. But you also do it when you serve, right? We have parents that need to be spiritually filled up. We have single moms, single dads that need to spiritually be filled up. And when you volunteer to serve in the nursery, you give them a peace of mind where they can drop their kid and come and get filled up for an hour. That's how you love those in need well. We have spiritual orphans in our kids' ministry, and in our student ministry that need mature believers to come alongside them and say, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let me love you well. When you serve in those ministry areas, you love and care for the needs of the needy. We have people that are uncomfortable walking into church, and when you volunteer to greet and you're a warm, kind, loving face at the door, you're helping meet the needs of those in need. You see how this command becomes a little less overwhelming when it's read in the context of community? Certainly do this as individuals. 
but certainly be a part of a community, whether it's here or somewhere else. I would love for it to be here that's committed to meeting the needs of others. And don't just show up, but participate in that. Give and serve. That's an easy way that you can do this. The third thing that James mentions is that we love others well by seeing and treating them differently than the world. He says at the end of 127 that true religion is to be uh, oneself unstained from the world, to remain unstained from the world. We see this all throughout scripture. Again, that we are called to be counter-cultural. In Romans 12, 1, we see, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're called to be different. And I just want to say at the beginning of this that I believe, myself included, we are all far more influenced by culture than we care to admit. Nobody comes with a blank slate. We all have these cultural influences that affect the way that we think about, read scripture, and live our lives. It's important that we recognize that, that we acknowledge that. This is a look in the mirror type of moment when we constantly come back to the word, which we covered in James 1, and we constantly come back and say, okay, is my life lining up with the word or am I just floating down the current of culture like everyone else? And part of this, I believe, is that Christians embrace the idea of being a little bit weird, a little bit different than everything else in the world. And I'm not just talking about the, the slang words that we use and the way that we dress. I mean, there are deeply rooted seeds in our heart in the way that we live that I believe are unbiblical, that we have to use the word of God to weed out of our lives. And with an open hand, just say, God, show me where I'm living more in line with culture than I am with your word. It's a question we constantly have to be asking. However, I think when James talks about being unstained from the world, again, he mostly is talking about the way that we interact with people, the way that we treat people. That's why I think in chapter two, when he talks about partiality, that's not a new thought, but that's an elaboration on what it looks like to be unstained from the world. He's saying, be unstained from the world and don't show partiality. You see, the world operates based on status. What kind of job you have? What kind of clout do you have? What kind of position do you hold? What kind of clothes are you wearing? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of reputation have you created for yourself? That's how the world operates. And James is saying, don't do that. Don't let that stain you. We're not called to operate that way. This is something that I have to regularly confess and own for sin in my own life is how much culture has created in me this quickness to judge and be partial based on what someone might look like or how they're dressed or what they drive or their house or their job or their status. I think we do this all the time. So the question is, how does the gospel enable us to live out these expressions of love for people, right? How does the gospel enable us to guard our tongue, to give to those in need, and to remain unstained from the world? Let's go through that and we'll see it. 
by the way, these three things we can't do on our own, right? So it it feels like the, the cards are stacked against you when James says, hey, all you have to do is just control your tongue all the time. Uh, always give to people that are in need and don't let the world stain you. What? These are hard things to do, but this is what I love is I love when the Bible commands me to do something that I can't do. I love when God says do this and I know that I can't do it because what it does is it creates a dependence on the Holy Spirit so that I have to pray, Jesus, help me do this. I fail miserably every time. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. And we go back to the gospel. I'm gonna show you three ways that that the gospel truth drives us to express these things in our lives. The first one is this. The gospel frees us to love others by rescuing us from the idolatry of self-glory. James 2, 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. When the gospel takes root in our hearts, it slowly sanctifies us so that we stop living for our glory and we begin living for God's glory. Why do we we spew words of slander about other people? Because it helps me just get a moment of glory. Why do I withhold my resources, my time, my money, instead of giving them to the poor? Because I think as I collect resources and materialistic stuff, I get more glory, right? Why do I buy something really nice and expensive for me that I want but I don't need rather than give money to the poor? Because I think by buying that thing, people say, oh man, Stephen, that shirt, man, that looks good. And I just get an ounce of glory. It's a love for my glory that prevents me from giving to those in need more. It's a love for my glory that produces words of hate towards other people. John Calvin says it this way, when people shed their grosser sins, they're extremely vulnerable to contract the sin of the tongue. He says a man will steer clear of adultery, stealing, drunkenness, and might be a shining light in many ways, yet will revel in destroying the character of others under the pretext of zeal, but it is a lust for validation, for self-glory. We all have this self-glory problem. We want glory. And when the gospel takes roots in our heart, it begins to free us of that. And when we're freed from living for our glory and we begin living for God's glory, it enables us to speak well of people and to give to the needy and to not care about status when we address people, right? I'm gonna go after someone with good status because that'll help me get glory. I'm gonna talk to the most important man in the room because he can do something for me that'll give me glory. But when it's about God's glory, partiality disappears. The second thing, The gospel frees us to love others by creating humility within ourselves. James 2, 5, and 6 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? See, James is pointing out that if we understand the gospel well, we understand that God's economy works very differently than the world's economy. 
that God doesn't operate on social status and materialistic goods. In fact, all throughout scripture, we see Jesus say, the rich become poor and the poor become rich. The weak become strong, right? God's economy is different. That God didn't come to save people that have it together that are really wealthy and well thought of. God came for broken people. He says, when you were poor, I chose you to be rich. And so the gospel helps us understand that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It really doesn't matter. People just need Jesus. And every person is made in the image of God. So then we stop thinking highly of ourselves and our status and our place in this world and comparing it to everyone else. But we simply begin loving people well out of a heart of humility. The third way is that the gospel frees us to love well by replacing our treasure. The gospel frees us to love well by replacing our treasure. James 2, 8 and 9 says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you are doing well. James puts a bow on it here in 2.8. He says, all of these things, control your tongue, give to those in need, remain unstained from the world by not operating based on social status and wealth. And all of that concludes with, hey, just love your neighbor well. Love people well. If your religion is really there, if it's worth something, if it's not that broad kind of, yeah, I love God, whatever. If it's really something that's taken root in your heart, these things to some degree will begin to express themselves in your life. You remember earlier we looked at Matthew 13 and Philippians 3. I use those to demonstrate what the Bible commends as a valuable religion, right? Matthew 13 is where the man finds the kingdom of heaven and it's like a treasure in the field. He sells everything because it's worth it. And he buys that field because that treasure is everything. Well, I wanna contrast that with a story you're likely familiar with in Matthew 19. Right, Matthew 19 is when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds by telling him he must keep all the commandments. And the young man has the audacity to say, yeah, I've done that. I'm good. So Jesus continues, he, he says, the man says, which ones? Jesus says, these ones, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. The man says, yeah, I've done all that. And then Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, I've done that. So then Jesus kind of ups the ante, right? He says in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Jesus says, hey, give up your worldly treasure. Give it to people in need. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then you can come and you can follow me. It says that when the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great 
possessions. We often read this passage and we think about this as a one-time fire sale, right? Like sell everything you have, give it to the poor and start over. But what Jesus really meant was that this would be a continual habit in his life, that he would regularly sell his stuff and he would regularly give to the poor. It wasn't a one-time thing to get into heaven. It was if you'll embrace this type of lifestyle, if you'll demonstrate your true treasure by being willing to give up earthly treasures, then you can come follow me. See, the difference between the man in Matthew 13 that joyfully sold everything to obtain the field and the man in Matthew 19 is exactly what we started with. It's what do you value most? Is your religion just a kind of a cherry on top? Something that you're saying, I like it, but if I had to sell everything, I don't think so. Or does it dictate your life? Is it everything? The difference between Matthew 13 and Matthew 19 is in Matthew 13, the man says, I value that so much, I'll give it all up. I want that. And James says, that is meaningful religion. When you say, Jesus is so valuable to me that I will give up my glory and speak well of others. I'll give up my pride. I'll give up my social status. I'll give up my stuff to love my neighbor well. And the man in Matthew 19 says, I like religion and all that's good, but I don't like it enough to give up my glory and all this stuff I have and my pride and my social status and my standing before people. And James is teasing this out for us and saying, which one are you? Are you part of that broad spectrum where you say, yeah, we're religious. We go to church when it's convenient. I, I obey God on the easy stuff when it's in line with what I want. We, we give sometimes when we just have extra. Or are you part of this worthwhile, valuable religion that James is talking about? Where you say, it's everything. It's my treasure. And I'll give up my glory. I'll give up my stuff. I'll speak well of others because it's not about me. I'll give to the poor and the needy because all this stuff isn't my glory anyways. Which one are you? Our worship team's gonna come out and, and we're gonna do one more song. And, and I just wanna encourage you to, during that to, to reflect, right? To ask yourself, you think you're religious? Where are you? And maybe for some of you, you are. You're believers and you would just say, Lord, help me express these things more in my life. As I continually come back to the gospel, change the DNA of my heart so that I can speak well of others and daily slay my desire for glory and stuff. Show me how I can help those in need to be more selfless with my time and with my resources. But maybe some of you for the first time, you're in here and you're saying, man, I think my religion's worthless. I think I'm in this category. Like we've kind of come to church sometimes when it's easy, but, but man, I'm still living out of a foundation that's all about my glory and what I want and nothing's changed. Maybe you want to talk to somebody and we have people that would love to do that with you in, 
in the prayer room to my right and to your left. You can come down front and talk to me. You can stay after and find me. I want you to get it. Don't live under this false presumption of a false religion that's meaningless. If, if you're gonna do that, don't come back. I mean, just enjoy your Sunday in the lake, you know? Because you're just kind of wasting your time. But if Jesus is your treasure, it changes everything.